listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Falangong. This is episode 9 of the series Who Financed Hitler, part 1, or Giving the Game Away. Today I'm recording from Five Carolinan Plots via Bruckman. On the 8th of November, 1923, Hitler and 2,000 Nazis attempted a coup d'etat against the Weimar Republic. For a variety of reasons, the coup, commonly called the Munich or Beer Hall Push, was unsuccessful, with 16 Nazis killed and most Nazi leadership imprisoned. They held a highly publicized trial. Hitler was found guilty of treason and sentenced to five years which was a light sentence, considering what he was trying to do. Hitler was out in nine months. During the time in jail, he wrote Mein Kampf. It's not my intention to cover well-known parts of Nazi history, but the Beer Hall Push grounds us in the place and time that we're talking about today. Right after the Beer Hall Push, the Nazi party was yet again dead broke and they were reliant on relatively unsophisticated shakedowns to survive. For instance, the stormtroopers went and shook down a publishing company owned by the Jewish Parkus brothers. They confiscated large stacks of inflated currency. The total sum confiscated was 14,000 trillion marks, for which they demanded and received a receipt. As was common in those days, By the time they confiscated the money and spent it, it had already dropped even more in value. The Nazis at large contemplated how to keep the party going while its leadership was locked up. They considered bank robberies, because the Bolsheviks famously staged a bank robbery in 1907 that was thought to have financed their movement, but the idea was scrapped. They thought about counterfeiting, since it would have a dual purpose of destabilizing the Weimar Republic. But due to the state of hyperinflation, this was already happening, and counterfeiting was unworkable, as it was just, it just would not have been profitable. The only real answer, just like before, was to go out and beg for cash. Right after the putsch, they relied on the largesse of the Wagners, the Bruckmans, the Becksteins, and Putzi Hanfstengel, along with businessman Albert P.H. The years of 1924 to 1928 were pretty rough on the Nazi party since they constituted a period of economic progress, and the Nazis thrived on all of the economic downturns. Anytime the economy was doing poorly, the Nazis were doing great. In 1926, luckily for them, there was a new political issue that they could make hay out of, Uh, what to do with all the royal estates of the deposed nobility, particularly nobility such as the King of Bavaria and the Duke of Württemberg and the Hohenzollerns, were all left in a legal state of limbo because the revolution of 1918 did not settle the question of what to do with their property. There was no one response to what to do with these properties, and each one was left to individual state governments and potential plebiscites. The socialists and the communists, of course, wanted to expropriate the <clears throat> wanted to expropriate the estates without compensation, 
while the center and right parties saw it as an attack on private property. As ironic as it may sound today, there was actually a left wing of the Nazi party, led by a man named Otto Strausser, who was in favor of the expropriations. Like we talked about in prior episodes, the National Socialists were, by definition, co-opting various aspects of socialism, so there were always elements in the party who wanted a greater ratio of socialism mixed in with their nationalism. At various times, Hitler had to fight off both the left and right wings of his party from undermining them in their march to power. Although Hitler was generally fighting off the left wing of his party much more than the right wing. Also, later on, just as a side note, Otto Strausser went on to form a party with the name the German Racist Party, which is just hysterical. The German Racist Party. (laughs) Hitler used the status of the nobility's estates to differentiate the Nazis from the rest of the right. Hitler said that the expropriations were, in fact, a Jewish swindle. Hitler, of course, was ignoring the fact that many Jews, being property owners themselves, favored the sides of the princes and private property, and Hitler naturally also didn't mention that he was receiving 1,500 marks a month from the Duchess of Sachsen-Anhalt, who is one of the deposed nobility whose estates they were arguing over. There was one particular plebiscite to seize the property, and the plebiscite did not pass, and the nobility unfortunately got to keep their property. The Nazis were seen, very publicly, as being on the side of private property, while somehow also blaming the Jews for the whole incident. More importantly, though, Hitler clamped down on the Strasser wing of the party in a grueling Nazi party summit. Now we come to our first real German industrialist Nazi supporter. In 1927, the Nazis got their first German industrialist supporter, Emil Kierdorf, who was born into a textile manufacturing family, but he switched to running a coal mining firm, making his interests that of heavy industry rather than light industry. So people have called Kierdorf cantankerous. But they said that he was also a good public speaker. He was also short, bald, and he was always defending the German cartels, denouncing trade unions, and criticizing government expansion of social welfare, any amount beyond what Bismarck had set in place. In fact, Emil Kurdorf was so reactionary that he called the policies of the imperial government dangerously radical, which is... Hilarious, although I suppose I can see how, from a certain perspective, that would make sense. During World War I, Kurdorf belonged to the Vaterlandsparty, which was an organization of uncompromising annexationists. Like, it's hard to explain, but basically, he was the type of guy who <laughs> wanted to basically annex France and make it part of Germany, which Not even most arch-nationalists were considering doing at the time. Kurdorf seemed to make a hobby of giving money to crank right-wing groups, and he had supported Alfred Hugenberg of the German Nationalist Party, but Kurdorf was not happy with 
some of their recent positions since the German Nationalist Party was dominated by Junker agricultural interests, which, of course, were not the same as his. So in 1927, we're talking Emil Kurdorf. He was 80 years old already. But nevertheless, he saw Hitler speak, and he was impressed. After introductions via Frau Elsa Bruckmann, Hitler met Kurdorf, and they found that they held the same values and had some of the same ideas for how to fix Germany. Ten years later, when Kurdorf was 90 years old, he said in an interview with Pressig Zeitung, the inexorable logic and clear conciseness of his train of thought, Hitler's, that is, filled me with such enthusiasm for what he had said. I asked the Fuhrer to write a pamphlet on the topics he had discussed with me. I then distributed this pamphlet in business and industrial circles. Shortly after our Munich conversation, and as a result of the pamphlet, several meetings took place between the Fuhrer and leading industrial personalities. This pamphlet was called The Road to Resurgence, and it was printed privately by Hugo Bruckmann's publishing house and distributed privately by Emil Kurdorf. The pamphlet was intended for a limited and exclusive audience, to wit, the nation's leading industrialists. Because the conservative parties, had they found out, could have warned the businessmen who were already in their pockets to stay away. However, the main reason why the Nazis wanted to keep the pamphlet top secret was the even greater danger of the pamphlet falling into the hands of the socialists and the Marxists. So, what was in that pamphlet? Nobody knew for a long time, because it was top secret. And a lot of people were very curious to figure out what Hitler said to these industrialists to get their money. Finally, in 1966, an American historian named Henry A. Turner discovered the pamphlet, and it was pretty mind-blowing. Basically, Hitler gives the game away. Hitler says outright, in very clear, explicit terms, that they needed to pacify the workers to prevent Germany from going over to the communists. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a huge revelation, because I have said it a handful of times already on previous episodes, but just stop. Think about it. This pamphlet is the closest thing we have to hearing what Hitler was saying directly, man-to-man, -to, -man, to the titans of industry, in private, behind closed doors. And what does he say to them? He says, Fascism is the bargain they need to make to keep the country from going red. He was telling them that explicitly. And mind you, the Nazi party wanted to keep this a secret, lest the Marxists justifiably point out that many of the same goals could be reached by confiscating the wealth of the rich rather than scapegoating the Jews. You remember in our first Esoteric Nazism episode how the Nazis would kill to keep the secret that Hitler had a psychosomatic illness. I think it's always instructive to look at what the Nazis were hiding, which is the psychosomatic illness, this pamphlet, the source of their funds. Those are some of the biggest secrets that the Nazis have. This is what I call giving the game away. Hitler says it directly. He says the quiet part loud. 
And just so we don't think that this pamphlet was a fluke or a one-off thing, let's talk about a second time where Hitler makes this same argument. This is happening four years later in 1931. In our mind palace, let's travel together to Dusseldorf. There we are in 1931, January 27th to be precise, and we're in a luxurious hotel. We are seeing, in our mind's eye, the Dusseldorf Industry Club, holding a meeting of 600 of the top industrialists in Germany to hear Hitler speak. The club included heavy industry magnates, the tycoons of coal, iron, and steel, but also bankers, corporate lawyers, editors of newspapers, and publishers. This meeting was legendary, so perhaps there's been some myth-making, but one observer, Otto Dietrich, said, quote, the vast majority of the audience bore an air of superiority and cool reserve, probably flattered that Hitler had approached them. Mere curiosity and general interest lured them to the meeting. They wanted to hear Hitler speak. They had no intention of being converted. They came to criticize and seek confirmation for their own infallible opinions. Unquote. Hitler, going into this meeting, knew that what he needed to do was to differentiate himself in a big way. And he also knew that what this particular crowd feared more than anything was communism, sweeping Germany and dispossessing them of their property. So right off the bat, his speech started with that. And I quote from the speech here. Bolshevism today is not merely a mob storming about in some of our streets in Germany, but it is a conception of the world which is in the act of subjecting itself to the entire Asiatic continent. And then Hitler goes on about the dangers of communism. He spoke about the decline of Germany at length. Then Hitler takes an interesting pivot here. Quote, Take any single area you like. Take, for example, India. England did not conquer India by the way of justice and law. She conquered India without regard for the wishes and views of the natives or their formulations of justice, and when necessary, she upheld this supremacy with the most brutal ruthlessness. Just the same way Cortes or Pizarro annexed Central America and the northern states of South America, not on the basis of any claim or right, but on the absolute inborn feeling of the superiority of the white race. It matters not what superficial disguises in individual cases this, may, this right may have been assumed. In practice, it was the exercise of an extraordinarily brutal right to dominate others, and from this political conception was developed the basis for the economic annexation of the world, which was not inhabited by the white race. Hitler then began a brief analysis of the world economic crisis, saying, The populations of Germany, England, and France have increased to such an extent that their survival can be guaranteed only if the continued export of goods to world markets is maintained. Competition has driven European peoples to ever-increasing improvements in their methods of production. This, in turn, has led to a continuous economizing of the number of men employed. As long as the opening of new markets kept pace with the reduction of the number of workers, those who were withdrawn from work in agriculture and later handicrafts could easily be transferred to new productive activity. But we see that since the World War, there was no further important extension of export markets. On the contrary, we see that 
relatively those export markets contracted, that the number of exporting nations gradually increased, and that a great many former export markets became themselves industrialized, while finally a new wholesale exporter, America, which perhaps today is not yet all-powerful in all spheres, but certainly in individual cases, can reckon on those advantages in production which we in Europe assuredly do not and cannot possess. Here we see that Hitler is understanding economics beyond just blaming the Jews for everything. He clearly understands the boom and bust cycles of industrial production that Karl Marx outlines in Capital, and some of the ideas he's advocating here were shared only by some of the more progressive economists of the day. Specifically, Hitler is identifying many of the major problems that were facing European capitalism, which is to say, an increase in the number of industrial nations, an end of imperial expansion resulting in a lack of new export markets, and the sudden rise in competition of America as an exporting nation. Hitler says, The essential thing is to realize that at the present moment we find ourselves in a condition which has occurred several times before in the history of the world. There have been other times when the volume of certain products in the world exceeds the demand. For example, there were times when the tonnage of sea-going ships was far greater than the amount of goods to be carried as freight. If you read history and study the ways by which men sought relief, then you will always find the same thing. The freight was not increased to match tonnage, but tonnage was reduced to match freight. And of course, that did not come about through voluntary economic decisions of the shippers, but through decisions enforced through political power. That was the case between Rome and Carthage, between England and Holland, and between England and France. I know the view is that one can conquer the world by purely economic means, but that is one of the greatest and most terrible illusions. There was no Carthaginian life without the fleet of Carthage, and no Carthaginian trade without the army of Carthage. There can be no flourishing economic life, which was not before it and behind it a flourishing, powerful state as its protection." Unquote. Here, of course, Hitler's referring to the historical fact that economic empires were always tied to military empires and that it cannot be any other way. The markets are a byproduct of war, and war is the byproduct of markets. They are like two sides of the same coin. Hitler advocated for a strong military that would go out and conquer in order to create economic prosperity at home. Stop me if this sounds a little too familiar for us as Americans. Hitler then says, quote, Most people see six or seven million men who take no part in the process of production, and they regard those men only from the economic standpoint and regret the decline in production which this unemployment causes. But gentlemen... People fail to see the mental, moral, and psychological results of this fact. Do they really believe that such a percentage of the nation's strength can be idle without exercising any mental effect? Must it not have as its consequence a complete change in spirit? How could the unemployed see communism as anything but their salvation? Hitler here, of course, is being intentionally provocative with the businessmen, because the room full of industrialists were not used to being accosted, for the negative side effects of unemployment levels, at least not by someone who wasn't a socialist. All the businessmen and industrialists in the room personally 
felt that a certain level of unemployment was good in order to keep wages low. But here Hitler was showing them how they actually had a vested interest in higher rates of employment, fascism or communism being the choice. Hitler then pushed the point further. He said, What use is it for a government to publish a decree with the aim of saving the people's economic life when the nation itself has two completely different attitudes towards economics? One section says the precondition for economics is private property. The other section maintains that private property is theft. 50% declare for one principle and 50% for the other. Gentlemen, these conflicts strike at the power and strength of the nation as a whole. How is a people still to count for anything abroad when 50% are inclined to Bolshevism and 50% are nationalist or anti-Bolshevik? At this point, the room of industrialists were cheering and clapping with shouts of, yes, yes, very true, yes. Obviously, I am delivering it in a more measured fashion, but Hitler, of course, knew how to get the crowd going. Hitler continued, It is quite conceivable to turn Germany into a Bolshevist state. It would be a catastrophe, but it is conceivable. It is also conceivable to build up Germany as a nationalist state. But it is inconceivable that one should create a strong and sound Germany if 50% of its citizens are Bolshevists and 50% are nationally minded. Unless Germany can master this internal division, no measures or legislation can stop the decline of the German nation. National socialism must be regarded as the one real danger for Bolshevism. We have formed the inexorable decision to destroy Marxism in Germany. The speech continued, but it's not worth reading the rest of it. Needless to say, it reached an emotional climax and ended with long and tumultuous applause. After the speech, Fritz Tyson, the chairman for the evening, thanked Hitler and said, and before the audience he said, only National Socialism and its leader's spirit could save Germany from her doom. Reportedly, the effects of the speech were astounding because Hitler showed that he could pass as a reasonable, grounded economic realist with what businessmen euphemistically call sound economic and monetary policy, and that Hitler could cool it with the wild anti-Semitism. Cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks. From now on, nobody could dismiss Hitler as just a beer hall demagogue or rabble-rouser because he had succeeded in winning over a group of listeners composed entirely of Germany's ruling elite, who, at the start, thought that they were not going to particularly like what he had to say. Also, keep in mind that this speech was not published, nor was it made public. This speech and the pamphlet were both intended for industrialists only. So, back to right after Hitler wrote the pamphlet in 1927, Emil Kierdorf invited and organized a small group of industrialist friends to regularly have dinner with him and Hitler. Later on in the evening, when it was down to just the four of them, Josef Terboven, Rudolf Hess, Emil Kierdorf, and Adolf Hitler, Kierdorf got down to business. He asked Hitler if Hitler could control his own party. What he was really asking was if he could control the left wing of his party, specifically Otto Strausser, and cool it on certain aspects of the National Socialist platform that ran closer to socialism. Hitler told Kierdorf that he only needed three things in order to maintain control. First, he needed a little time. 
Second, he needed a lot of money. And third, he needed the ban against political activities in Prussia to be lifted. Kurdorf asked, And if I give you those, what will the party line be then? Hitler responded, You and the other industrialists could dictate the party line insofar as it affected you and the properties you own. There it is, folks. Basically, Hitler committed to giving heavy industry exactly and everything they would ever want regarding policy, if the Nazis were to take power. And, folks, would it surprise you that that is exactly what he did. From then on, Kierdorf began to invite more and more industrialists to meet Hitler privately at these dinners. Now, some historians believe that Kierdorf got the Rhenish-Westphalian coal syndicate to set aside 50 pfennigs, or roughly 13 cents per ton of coal, sold as a subsidy to the National Socialists. If this is true, this would have meant a steady annual donation of about 60 million Reichsmarks, or something like 40 million dollars today, per year. Rumors of this arrangement began to pop up in the 1930s. The claim is still debated, and there is not definitive proof, but, as we'll see in a moment, there are reasons to think it could be true. Also, as a side note, Emil Kierdorf was not himself actually that rich. As far as we can tell, he did not ever donate all that much money. Now, it's not, it's not insubstantial. We're talking like ballpark maybe giving a thousand, a couple thousand marks every couple months to the party. The reason why Kierdorf is so important, of course, is that he was the first industrialist to become a Nazi and the first to make those key contacts among other industrialists. I know I've mentioned several times, oh, so-and-so was crucial for making introductions into polite society of this town or that town. But it was Kierdorf who was taking Hitler specifically to meet industrialists. And at these dinners, he was supporting and backing them, which is something far and beyond just a simple introduction. Also, let that be a lesson to you folks. This is the programmed chill lesson of the day. If you promise to give businessmen exactly what they want, they just might support you politically. Around 1929, Hitler and the Nazi party were clearly doing much better. They were on a much better financial footing. And we have signs of that because now Hitler had enough money to live in a luxurious apartment on the Prince Regenten plots and staff it with servants. The change, of course, was due to Emil Kurdorf and his industrialist support and one other source. Now is a good time to reintroduce Fritz Tyson, who we did mention in prior episodes. He is known as the Crown Prince of Steel. Tyson was born into a mining and steelmaking family in the Ruhr Valley, and he studied mining and metallurgy when he was young. During the Kiel Mutiny of 1918, workers' Soviets were formed and seized power in the region. In the chaos that followed, Fritz Tyson and his father, the tycoon and steel baron, faced the industrialists' worst nightmare. The Reds came to eat the rich. It's worth reading from the account provided in Who Financed Hitler. <clears throat> Along with four other industrialists, the Tysons were thrown into the prison at Mülheim. 
In the middle of the night, they were awakened by a dozen rough-looking men carrying rifles and wearing red armbands. They pushed the six prisoners down a narrow corridor and into a dark courtyard illuminated by the glare of a single spotlight. The industrialists were ordered to line up against the wall. I thought they were going to execute us, said Tyson. There they waited. The moment seemed like hours. Then finally the silence was broken. One of the guards shouted something. A reprieve. The prisoners would be taken to the railway station. On the platform, a Red Guard detachment was waiting. The Mulheim communists handed their prisoners over to them and jeered at the capitalist pigs, who they said would soon meet their fate. The Tysons met Emil Eichhorn, who Fritz Tyson described as a dangerous communist agitator in the service of Soviet Russia. During the early days of the revolution, the radical socialists had nominated Eichhorn chief of the Berlin police. He had transformed the central police station into a fortress known as the Red House, and had picked his personal bodyguard from the most radical elements of the Berlin proletariat. At the time, it was rumored that Eichhorn had ordered the arrest of many political enemies and officials of the old regime, and that he had had them executed in the courtyard of the police headquarters without trial. Naturally, the Tysons and their companions feared for their lives. Eichhorn's men took the prisoners from the Potsdam station to police headquarters for interrogation. The prisoners were assembled before Eichhorn. You are accused of treason and anti-revolutionary activities. You are enemies of the people and have asked for the intervention of French troops in order to prevent the socialist revolution. The industrials protested and said they had no contact with the French army of the occupation. Eichhorn said, don't try to deny it. They were taken to the main prison of Berlin, where they were then held for several days before being freed. It is easy to see how a close call with execution would have had a very traumatic effect on anyone, and to a great extent, Fritz Tyson's later association with and financing of Hitler was motivated by his dread and memory of the Red Terror. Not to overstate it, of course, because almost immediately after being released, Fritz Tyson went on to serve as an economic advisor to the German delegates at the Versailles Peace Conference, where he stayed for three months, and then he traveled with the delegates to the Reichstag, where the National Assembly was in session. He tried to convince them that they should not accept the conditions of the Allies. President Ebert and the Social Democratic Party decided to sign the treaty along with the Catholic Center Party, effectively undermining both parties. Because just about everyone in the entire country saw the treaty as humiliating and, in the words of Tyson, condemning the whole nation to a sort of economic slavery. On top of that, the Germans had to admit their war guilt, which... I mean, most people who've looked anything at World War I would say the Germans were not particularly more guilty than any other party for that war. In 1923, I think we mentioned this in a prior episode, Fritz Tyson was the guy who gave General Ludendorff 100,000 gold marks for him to give to the Freikorps and the Nazis in order to fend off another revolution, like we talked about in episode 7. The same year, 1923, the French occupied the Ruhr. Many industrialists fled, but Tyson remained and helped organize passive resistance. 
the German coal syndicate called a meeting of prominent industrialists like Steins, Krupp, Kierdorf, and Klockner, and they all decided to resist sending coal to France, both out of patriotic duty and, of course, because it crippled their own businesses. They were all arrested by the French and sent to a military prison and charged with inducing organized labor to resist and with disobeying French military orders under martial law. German workers staged a series of strikes designed to prevent coal from being sent to France and Belgium. This is a crazy moment in history where the industrialists are urging strikes and the workers are listening to their bosses and striking. It's topsy-turvy. It's a crazy world. And, for reference, this is the incident we talked about in episode 3, when John Foster Dulles was brought out to the Krupp private hotel to meet with the Ruhr Valley industrialists. John Foster Dulles went on to conduct a private round of negotiations with the French, Germans, and Belgians to resolve the impasse over the Ruhr occupation. If you'll recall, his suggestions only satisfied the Germans. Fritz Tyson, on trial, was facing the possibility of five years of imprisonment, but the French, having tact and or wanting to get out of a possible quagmire, gave him a fine of 300,000 gold marks instead. This, of course, made Tyson very bitter at the French and much more receptive to Hitler's nationalist rhetoric. Fritz Tyson's father died in 1926, so he took over the family companies and formed United Steelworks, which controlled 75% of all German iron ore reserves, and employed over 200,000 people. He was prominent in Germany, and sat as head of the German Iron and Steel Industry Association, and was a board member of the Reichsbank. <clears throat> Today, he's known as the person who gave more funding to the Nazis than any other one person. He gave the number at 1 million marks, although we have reason to believe that the number was much higher. Three things brought Fritz Tyson closer to the Nazi party, although he would not join until 1933. The first thing was his fear of communism. The second was his suspicion of Jews. The third was his opposition to the Versailles Treaty, and I suppose a fourth being angry at the French. In the fall of 1928, Hitler was trying to finance the purchase of the now-famous Brown House, which became the palatial party headquarters of the Nazi party. First they hit up Emil Kierdorf, but Kierdorf suggested that perhaps Fritz Tyson might be up for financing it. Tyson, who went five full years without probably giving them money, decided to help them. Fritz Tyson arranged for the party to get a loan, and he says that it was for a quarter million marks. Although there is documentary evidence to suggest that the loan was actually for 1,025,000 marks. This was financed through a Dutch bank as their currency was more stable. Tyson said, I chose a Dutch bank because I didn't want to get mixed up with German banks in my position and because I thought that I would then have the Nazis a little more in my hands. Of course, the Nazis didn't mind being in the hands of Fritz Tyson and... Hitler and Rudolf Hess began to take weekend trips to visit Tyson at one of his several castles. And it was around this time that Tyson became close with Hermann Göring. Yes, this is definitely when Nazi funding picked up and got on to the next level. So we have now introduced 
the three major funders of the Nazi party in the early days, which is to say Henry Ford, Emil Kierdorf, and Fritz Tyson. And so now we have an interesting opportunity to compare and contrast them. Henry Ford, on the one hand, was basically a crank ideological anti-Semite, and he funded the Nazis more or less on that alone. Emil Kierdorf was a curmudgeonly arch-nationalist, and anti-Semitism was not particularly important to him. He wanted a strong, militaristic Germany and opposed unions of any type, and he simply thought that the Nazis could deliver those things. Fritz Tyson was sociable and had many friends throughout all levels of society. He also had some level of social consciousness. His motivation for funding the Nazis was his, was his strong opposition to the Red Terror and to the Versailles Treaty. Anti-Semitism was a distant third for him and was honestly not a huge factor. Each of these three saw the Nazi party as a vehicle for the one or two things that they liked and thought the Nazis could accomplish. And I suppose you could say they got what they wanted. Fundamentally though, there's no reason to quibble about it. With the exception of Ford, the Nazis got their funding from industries that were specifically picked on by, by the Versailles Treaty, and those industries were on the verge of collapse, which is to say, heavy industry. Both Tyson and Kierdorf were magnates of heavy industry, which is steel, iron, coal, etc., up to 1918, a considerable portion of their business had involved war materials. Now, all of that was forbidden to them by the Versailles Treaty. German heavy industry was also closed out of many of its old markets, such as Eastern Europe. More than a few of the big coal and steel firms were about to go bankrupt. In order to remain competitive, they had to cut wages which naturally caused discontent among the workers and a conflict with the Weimar government. Although Tyson believed in improving social conditions of the laborers, his firm was in such a tenuous economic position in 1928 that even he was forced to ask the government to permit wage cuts. This is one of the primary distinguishing characteristics of the sectors of the German economy that supported Hitler. They were all on the verge of collapse, and saw his extremist measures as the last alternative. So, what did we learn today? First and foremost, we saw what a difference one industrialist can make. If you're an extremist group trying to get power, and you get just one powerful person, they can introduce you to their friends. Emil Kurdorf made all the difference to the Nazi party. On a related note, of course, when you see cults that specifically target and court rich and powerful people, they're doing the same exact thing. They can see who has power in society and they go after those people. And that, of course, is one of the dangers of having a economic system with several people having so much unaccountable power. They're not accountable to anyone. Next. Hitler's pamphlet, The Road to Resurgence, was suppressed because it gave the game away. Hitler let people know that National Socialism was the German ruling class's Faustian bargain to stave off the Red Terror. That's how Hitler was selling it, that's how it was packaged, and that's who was buying it. And that's why they hid the pamphlet from the press. Then we saw that Hitler said to the industrialists, If we get power, you can write your own ticket and do whatever you want. And he said that to German heavy industry, and that's exactly what he did. To a certain extent, this is just political sausage-making, 
This happens all the time for lots of cases that aren't as saucy, like anytime the Nazis are involved in anything, it seems more salacious than it really is. But this is showing that obviously the National Socialists under Hitler were not serious about the vaguely left-wing sounding positions in their own platform. It was always about seizing power first and foremost, and they always sold out the left wing of their party. There are a couple lessons from the life of Fritz Tyson. One obvious one would be, do not put industrialists up against the wall unless you are going to shoot them. Any Maoist insurgency out there, I know you're listening. Listen to me very clearly. Do not put industrialists against the wall unless you are going to shoot them. Sounds obvious, but there you have it. Apart from that, though, Tyson shows that, honestly, most of Germany's big business and industry were not, they were truly not motivated by all that anti-Semitism stuff. That was to rile up the masses, and it was also, and it had very real purposes in the ideology. It was the nucleus, in fact, but the industrialists didn't care about that. They were perfectly content working with center and right-wing parties. It didn't have to be the Nazis. They were fine with it. It didn't motivate them. They weren't bothered by the anti-Semitism, but it was not the factor in choosing the Nazi party. The factor, of course, that made them go with the Nazi party was the Faustian bargain that we talked about. Finally, I think it's important to recognize that every person has individual agency, but through mathematical averages, if you take into account class interests and you take the cumulative actions of every person in a given class, you can generally predict their actions with a high degree of accuracy. Sure, this might sound a little bit like stereotyping or something, but when you apply class analysis, it generally works more times than it doesn't. I mean, if you look at something like the Versailles Treaty, which is punishing certain industries, and then those industries funded Hitler, who positioned himself as the number one enemy of the Versailles Treaty, heavy industry asserted its class interests, and it used the Nazi party to do so, and it follows with almost mathematical precision. We're not done with Nazi financing, but we are over the hump, so to speak. One thing I promise you, dear listener, is that I swear we will eventually cover some non-evil people. We might even get to some heroes. But what we're doing, whether you realize it or not, is that we are laying a groundwork. That's right. We're covering Nazi financing to be in a better position to go back and look at Wall Street, Nazi networks in Latin America. All of this is going to give us a much stronger grounding for understanding business, crime, and parapolitics and esoterica in the 20th century. Things will make much more sense when we look at them with this grounding rather than trying to start with, like, Watergate or something. You feel me? Stay with me, folks. Four sources. Again, I used the great book Who Financed Hitler, as well as the book A Law Unto Itself, and the book The Arms of Krupp. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. And as always, just tell a friend about the show. Now I need to be on my way. I'm headed to the Brocken at the peak of the Harz Mountains. See you next week, and God bless.